Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage all the way to the we-just-hit-a-million-orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash specialoffer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash specialoffer. I am Laura Coates, and this is CNN Tonight. Federal prosecutors taking aim directly at Donald Trump's own words and deeds. The proof? The aggressive court fights they're gearing up for and who might be trying to hide behind privilege. So for those of you who thought that all the privilege issues had been resolved, think again. CNN has exclusive reporting tonight. The DOJ is prepping for a kind of constitutional showdown over whether there is, in fact, any applicable privilege that could possibly shield the former president or any of his former officials. About what? Their communications with him when he was the president. Now, the department, they want to take the muzzle off, of course. And keep in mind, when two former Pence aides testified to the federal grand jury, there had been a deal that had already been negotiated in advance to try to steer clear of any of their direct interactions with Trump. That happens to be the same approach we've seen used by the House Select Committee. But the fact that the DOJ is sort of dotting their I's and crossing their T's and preparing for a court battle over a potential executive privilege issue signals that... If information is what you want, the negotiation approach, let alone the muzzle, isn't going to cut it. Now remember, concerns about privilege are believed to be why they chose not to pursue any contempt of Congress charges against, say, a Mark Meadows or a Dan Scavino, as opposed to, of course, a Steve Bannon and, and Navarro. But at the same time, the department has now greenlit all of the access to the House Select Committee's transcripts. That's more than about a thousand witnesses, I might add. And in the words of Chairman Benny Thompson, no one the committee has talked to is off limits. Now that list is about to include some household names, including some with potential political futures. These witnesses have unique insight into the chaos of the administration, of course, after the Capitol was attacked. And today it was former acting White House Chief of Staff, Mick Mulvaney. At the time, he had been serving overseas, but he has certainly not been shy about what he saw as a dysfunctional executive branch. The West Wing was broken. It was not functioning properly. And the committee is really moving on up the totem pole, from assistants to some of the highest positions in government. They've interviewed Trump Secretary of the Treasury, Steve Mnuchin, who is one of only four cabinet secretaries to serve for the entire Trump administration. We know that former Director of National Intelligence John Ratcliffe is in talks, as is former Acting Homeland Security Secretary Chad Wolf, and former Secretary of State and potential 2024 candidate Mike Pompeo, who had this to say on Fox. 
as I always did when I was in service to America, I, I'm happy to cooperate with things that are fair and transparent and deliver good outcomes for the American people. Of course, seconds later, he added this part. It's been a monkey court. It's been a circus. It's been totally unfair. So cooperate, no, talk, no, not entirely clear as of yet. Hopefully the committee has an answer. We know that one of the topics the committee wants to learn more about is just how serious the cabinet members were about trying to remove Trump from power by way of the 25th Amendment, which we know from sworn testimony, Pompeo was worried enough to give Mark Meadows a heads up about the prospect. Mr. Pompeo reached out to have the conversation with Mr. Meadows in case he hadn't heard the discussions amongst cabinet secretaries. Now, as we know, in the words of Sean Hannity's own text messages, quote, yes, impeachment and 25th Amendment are real. Now, politically, let's just say it's never a good look when your highest profile supporters are talking about whether two more weeks of you being in office poses a threat to the country and it's 14 days too long. And folks like Pompeo see the same polls that we do, where a majority of Republicans well, they now want someone other than Trump in 2024. Seems to be opening a bit of the floodgates. And of course, Steve Bannon just showed what happened when you refused to cooperate with the committee. I want to talk about this with former federal prosecutor Shan Wu, former Democratic Senator Doug Jones, and former RNC communications director Doug High. All of you had the former, but you're all presently here. <laughs> I'm sorry, it was like former, former, former. You're all currently experts at all these topics. I have to ask you, Shan, when you hear about the privilege issues more broadly, I mean, it's a bit more nuanced, right? It's not just who might have the privilege. Biden said he's not going to assert the privilege here. But they're kind of figuring out, is this a fight we can win if we go there? Is it smart? It's smart to figure that out. And uh, really, this is a role that A.G. Garland was born to do. Hmm. He's a federal court of appeals judge, really, for most of his career. So he's a good guy to lead DOJ into this type legal fight. That's the good news. I think the bad news is it's still going to take a while, anywhere between months to maybe even longer. Trump's people want to play this out through the district court, court of appeals, and then, of course, going to the Supreme Court, where we can have a big, long talk about which way that's going to go, depending on the votes. I, I mean, yeah, you're at the intersection of, you know, obviously, being a, for a prosecutor and also a member of Congress. And the idea of, you know, you have the wheels of justice turning, but you have the bureaucratic wheels turning them back sometimes and being slow and contemplative, but almost to the point of paralysis. And I wonder what you make of the timing of that contemplation. Well, I, I think that clearly Shan's right about the fact that they're going to play the old equivalent of Dean Smith's four-corner offense at North Carolina. That's my alma mater. Exactly. Okay, so you know exactly what I'm talking about. Run the clock out, score as little as you can. Run the clock out, score enough to win. That's what, that's what this is all about for them. I don't think that they really have much of a legal standing. Um, and remember, this is not the January 6th committee where the remedy is contempt and a, and a misdemeanor, even if it is a, from a misdemeanor in hell that kind of froze over for Steve Bannon. This is a, a more of a contempt of a grand jury subpoena. This is going to be much more serious. They can hold them in jail until they uh, you know, purge themselves of the contempt uh, if that's the case, I think this is a delaying tactic, and I agree with Shen exactly. This is this you know this is the kind of thing that they have been preparing for. They knew it was coming. They have got their legal briefs already t- 
to go as and, soon as it happens. But so are the people who I'm sure, and obviously we're talking a lot about the former president, Donald Trump, but there are a lot of people who want to be the next Republican president who are watching this. I'm sure you can imagine and think of themselves, all right, how can I make this a nerd in my benefit? How do I make sure that while they're running off the clock to have the privilege issues, I'm ramping up my ability to be the next viable candidate? Yeah. Well, you do two things simultaneously if you can. You do what you have to and you do what you want to and you hope to. And so what you see Mike Pompeo talking about is I'll participate in anything because he has to do what he has to. But he also wants to do what he wants to as a potential candidate, which is to then criticize the process and so forth. I, I would say, you know, when Mike Pompeo was a member of Congress, he was one of the members who voted to hold Eric, um, Eric um, Holder in contempt mm-hmm. um, on, the, um, on the guns issue um, and Fast and Furious. And the, the point for Republicans in doing that is when Congress asks for something, the answer is yes. And it's yes as quickly as possible. And so for those, um, for those people in the Trump administration who've defied that, they do so at their own peril, some of, some of whom have gotten away with it, but a lot of whom may not. We're also getting really close, though, to Donald Trump. I mean, before it was Cassidy Hutchinson, and there was discussion of, I don't know who this person is, right? The idea of, who is this person you speak of? Then you've got the idea of, well, it's this person. It's the chief, uh, chief aide of, um, of Mike Pence. Now it's Pompeo. It's, it's Mick Mulvaney. It's Mnuchin. You've heard of them, none of whom are coffee boys, right? But the idea he, well, they might be. I don't know, maybe they're chai latte people. I don't know what they're into <laughs> or what they've done for the president. But they're getting closer and closer here, Shan. Does that tell you something about the focus of the federal prosecutors now? I think it tells us that the focus is where it's supposed to be. I don't know if we can make the jump that I've heard some people talking about, that now we can say there's an investigation open on Trump. I mean, I would assume these questions about Trump would have been asked when folks were in the grand jury, where they answered or not different question. It's just that we're hearing for the first time the confirmation that they were asking about Trump. So I don't think we're quite there yet, nor would Garland be in a rush to say we're investigating the former president. But they're certainly asking the right questions. And I think you can see how nervous Trump is because it seems like it may be accelerating his intentions to announce his candidacy. <laughs> is the 25th Amendment really, um, I mean, the right focus? Because it, on the one hand, Doug, you think to yourself, all right, look, that shows a matter of the um, absence of capacity that people were urgent to try to remove him or thought about it. But if you're the DOJ, you're thinking about intent and you need a certain state of mind to suggest they knew what they were doing. So the 25th Amendment discussion would more likely be about the notion of this person was not upholding their oath any longer. Is that the right focus? Well, I think it can be. I mean, re- remember, we don't know what they might say. We don't right. know what was going on in there. And we just saw January 6th and that, right, that insurrection where police officers died, one woman was shot. It was unbelievable uh, violence. We don't know. These, these folks, these are cab- they're responsible people. They may be afraid that there would be more violence in the, in the coming days, more violence at the inauguration. They may have been very worried about this, and it's not just the state of mind, but it might have been the only way that they could prevent that violence or do something at the time. So we just don't know because we don't know what those comments were. But I, can, I can't imagine there will be a privilege that anybody can exert between a conversation with Mike Pompeo and Steve Mnuchin. I just, Mm. I have never, that's just beyond the pale, I think. But is it a feather in their cap politically to now even be called in? I mean, you heard, for example, um, Josh Hawley saying he doesn't regret anything to our own Manu Raju about the fist bump in the air and that thank you for the campaign financing or funding this is giving me. Is this a feather in the cap for somebody who's a 2024 Republican prospect to say, all right, I'll come in and talk to you? 
Sure. If you're all Trump all the time, you can benefit either way. If you say, I'll come in and talk to you, and then you thumb your nose either to a grand jury, good luck with that, by the way, or certainly the January 6th committee, you can benefit from that. If you stall, you might be able to benefit as well, but you then would have to be in a position where you have some privilege issues. And one thing we should remember, what we've seen so often in these January 6th hearings is the committee knows more than we do. So now we need to see, does the grand jury know more than we do? Does Georgia know more than we do? And that's going to be what plays out, I think, over the coming years. And they know more than those witnesses do, too. Mm -hmm. And so, yeah, it could go either way, but it could also go really bad. Either way, we'll be watching and following along. Shan Wu, thank you. The Dugs, that's your title. (laughs) The Dugs will stick around with us here. And so the question really is, not for them, but for the powers that be, are we in a recession or not? I mean, you got the president, the Fed chief, and a lot of economists saying no. But what about your bank account and your monthly statements? What are they telling you? We'll dive into the R word next. Plus, Democrats are furious, and some Republicans are frustrated, and sick veterans could be the ones to pay the price because a bill to help them suddenly hit a giant wall of D.C. dysfunction. Confirmation of the painful reality. Successive quarters of the economy going in the wrong direction. The president's trying to put a positive spin, and, well, he's arguing semantics. We have a record job market of uh, record unemployment of 3.6% today. We've created 9 million new jobs so far just since we became president. Businesses are investing in America at record rates. That doesn't sound like a recession to me. Well, he's not alone. The Fed chair said the same thing just yesterday. But does it really matter what you call it, especially for anybody struggling to put food on their table? Millions of families are now facing this new reality. I spent close to $400, and it wasn't even hardly on much meat because meat is so high. It was just like bread, juice, and stuff for my kids, snacks. It was ridiculous. You gotta make a decision whether or not you're gonna pay your rent or go buy some food. Now, when the cost of just about everything is going up and back to school time is here for many, there's no way of spinning the bill at checkout. We've got Doug Jones and Doug High, they're with me, but let's bring in Jeff Stein, the White House economics reporter for the Washington Post. We're all going to have like a Wimbledon stare at you right now as we all look for you to give us the expertise because, look, tomato, tomato. Um, They're saying it's not a recession, but does that technical definition, which is cited by, what, eight economists in the world, in the country, does that really ring true for people? Is Is it true we're not really in one or are we talking about semantics? So the White House is correct that at some level, two negative quarters of GDP growth does not necessarily mean that we're in a recession. The NBER, which you alluded to, which declares these things, looks at a range of statistics, many of which are still positive, unemployment, as the president alluded to. But to your fundamental point, so much of the economy, so much of economic policy is psychological in nature. We see someone else on our block, maybe, maybe the two Dugs, pulling back investment, pulling back spending, and maybe that affects what we do. And so over the next few months, what what is very scary is the possibility that the gains that we've made coming out of COVID over the last year could be erased, could go backwards. And we had a really bad sign of that today. 
um, investment, which is normally the first thing to go in a downturn. We saw a really big decline, a cratering, really, of residential investment, which means the housing market is starting to pull back, which is very scary. We saw a slight decline in business investment, which is also scary. Consumption from consumers, just average people, they they also pulled back, not as dramatically, but in, in a way that's scary. And the fact that we have low unemployment is a buffer, but how long that buffer lasts and how meaningful it is, we'll have to see. I mean, you let it wonder, can you course correct? I mean, the idea of thinking about if it's psychological and the idea of how one feels. I mean, oftentimes policy decisions are driven by how you perceive your constituents are going to feel about an issue. You've got this Inflation Reduction Act from Senator Manchin and Senator Schumer. And I'm wondering, will, will that in your minds bring this down? I mean, will it, will it sort of align the feelings of the electorate and those who are consumers with what's actually in the bill? I think it's going to help. Uh, clearly. I mean, you've got a big bill. Democrats have been looking to lower the cost of prescription drugs for a long, long time, particularly al- allowing Medicare to negotiate those prices. You've got climate issues. It, 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 as Jeff said, it, a lot of this is psychological. So these wins like this will help. Uh, it will help when people go to the gas pump and they see the price down 60 cents or so over the last five or six weeks. And, and they're pulling back on a lot of consumer spending, but it's on, also on consumer goods. And that's not necessarily a bad thing, I don't think, for the economy. It's that old supply and demand that's really hurt us a little bit. So, I, you know, I am not as bearish on all of this as most people are. I know that people are suffering and that they are going to continue for a little bit. But I think that there's light at the end of the tunnel. I think the policies that are being put in place with this bill and the things that the administration done in the past is helping. And I think people will recognize that. And that's what they want. They want to know somebody is working for them. And I think that that's a key. Well, the question, I mean, helping, it seems relative, right? I mean, you're telling me I'm going to spend no longer, at least in California, spending 7 or $8 a dozen of eggs, which is, for those of you who actually go shopping still, me right here, <laughs> that's a very high price. And the idea of maybe now it's $6, still not going to be good if it's helpful, right? Is that going to be part of the psychology here? Yeah, I think it's a part of the challenge for the Biden administration. And the, you know, the bearishness is the politics of this and the disconnect that this administration has in its rhetoric and how they're trying to explain things, explain things versus what people are feeling. So we use the R word. Last year, they were using the T word, that this is transitory. Mm. And folks in America don't use the word transitory when they're talking about the price of their eggs, a gallon of gas, a gallon of milk, whatever it may be. And that's the emotional part of this for Americans who are still really struggling and Biden usually is our empathizer in chief. He's always been very good at this. And this administration has really struggled here. And it ex- partly explains why so much of the country is disapproving of his um, presidency and feels we're on the wrong track. I think part of the real problem here, just to put the politics aside for a second, is economically what the Federal Reserve is doing, right, is raising interest rates, which makes borrowing more expensive, which sucks demand out of the economy. But the inflation that you guys are talking about, that we've been talking about, is in part caused, especially since the war of Ukraine, by short-term supply and commodity shocks. So the tools that the Federal Reserve and the central bank have to deal with higher inflation really are targeting demand, which has been supercharged over the last year. But over 50% of the increase of inflation recently has been due to commodity shocks from the war in Ukraine. And so you have what I think is a potentially devastating combination of demand being crushed in an attempt to deal with inflation, but the tool that's being used to crush that demand is not going to deal with the supply issue that's causing the bulk of the problem right now. So what else can be done? What else should be happening? I mean, these are two unprecedented bumps in as many months, essentially. We've got more in September coming, other policy meeting. But in that, in that meantime, people are suffering. They were told initially by President Biden, 
patience would be the key. The invasion into Ukraine, a global humanitarian crisis with the breadbasket of Europe now being impacted, deals being made. I mean, look at Africa and the famine is going to be coming from what's lost there. But the patience factor, how does that weigh in? We're talking about the economy. I mean, it's one thing to have the esoteric debates between, you know, the eight economists. Then there is the reality for Americans. Is patience really the request? So what the White House will tell you, and I think this is worth crediting because I think it's true, Americans' bank accounts, consumer spending, a lot of economic indicators, not just the unemployment rate, are a lot better than they were before COVID. And the White House will say, I think, correctly that our economic policies really helped ensure that we didn't have the same situation after the 2008 recession. Millions of people stayed unemployed for, for far too long. There was great, horrific scarring. That said, over the last year, people have really felt like they're losing ground because even if people are doing better than they were before COVID started, since the last year, they've really been suffering. And, and to get to your point, the problem we're facing right now and that, the, you know, you asked, how do we deal with this? And I ask economists this all day and they don't know because normally when we have a downturn, the tools we use, cut interest rates, expend, you know, increase federal spending, give people cash, that goes against the inflation imperative that they're fighting against, right? So the normal toolkit has been thrown out the window to deal with this. And that's part of the reason why this is so scary. And what else is scary, I mean, taking away from the economy for a moment, um, the fact that a lot of people are looking at Washington, D.C. to solve problems. And when we're on the cusp of solving a problem, sometimes politics takes it right off the table. The burn pit legislation, yeah. for example. I mean, you had some gains. It was snatched right back. A month ago, it was overwhelmingly bipartisan. Republicans were supporting it. Yesterday, forget about it. Yeah, they, they were, Republicans were not only supporting it, they were touting it. They were talking about how proud they were to be able to do this for our veterans because they have given so much. And now, because they're pouting, Literally, they're pouting. They're acting like school kids uh, and taking their marbles and pouting about what? They're pouting because McConnell. I mean, I'm sorry. Schumer and Manchin came up with this deal, and they think they got played. They may have. They may have. I mean, this was not an agreement in principle. Yesterday, there was a 720-page bill that was introduced at this announcement. McConnell had wanted to hold a chips bill uh, that is going to protect us from China hostage, so that he wouldn't get this reconciliation bill. Well, it didn't look like you're going to get reconciliation. So they went, the the CHIPS bill was passed. The minute it got passed, they come up with this. And now they pull back 86 senators Mm. voted for that burn pits. I I was a co-sponsor of that. It is important. It is now the number one issue for um, all of the military and the veterans groups. And 86 senators, 36 Republicans voted for it. And now 41 decide, oh, no, no, no. We're going to punish the Democrats for working on climate change for reducing um, uh, prescription drugs, for doing all the things that are necessary. We think we got place, so we're going to try to punish them. Only they're playing the veterans. They're playing the veterans. It's awful. You, Doug, worked on a PR um, portion of a bill not including the burn pits we want to disclose. But, I mean, this is the tactic? I mean, veterans as political pawns? Yeah, I I worked on the Camp Lejeune um, groundwater issue, which which got tucked into the bill, which is also an important and bipartisan issue. Yep. Look, I think when we see these kind of politics happen, what often happens is everybody gets outraged for a few days, rightfully so quite often, and then there's a pullback. And I'd be surprised if we're still talking about this issue being held hostage, um, certainly in the, in the next week and a half or, you know, coming out of the August recess. It, it should be passed. A majority in, in both houses support it of both parties. So we should get it done. But these are the politics, unfortunately, that happen quite often. They fortunately tend to be short term. And that's but it's why Congress is in such low esteem, even though it's short term. They've got the lowest approval ratings of any government agency at this point. 
Well, you know who ought to have the highest, those who are willing to put their lives on the line for the country. Veterans, Jeff Stein, Doug Jones, and Doug High, thank you so much. Look, Russia might be trying to bring back the Cold War, but it's already brought back the cold shoulder and giving it to Secretary of State Antony Blinken. So why isn't Moscow jumping on the chance to get the merchant of death back? I'll ask his lawyer next. So after weeks of silence, Russia has finally responded to the Biden administration's prisoner swap proposal. Wait for it. Um, we'll get back to you. Something along those particular lines. A spokesperson for Russian Foreign Minister Sergei Lavrov says that he'll pay attention to the U.S. State Department's request for talks when, quote, time permits. Well, meanwhile, time is of the essence for Americans Brittany Griner and Paul Whelan, who remain locked up in a Russian prison. Now, Biden proposes swapping them for convicted Russian arms dealer Victor Bout, a.k.a. the Merchant of Death. So will Russia agree? Well, first, they got to pick up the phone, right? Here to weigh in, Bout's attorney, Steve Zizou. Thank you for being here today. You know, I'm looking at this and hearing, and you you, you almost got to paraphrase, I'm going to pay attention when time permits. You have to wonder, why the lack of response? And does it worry you? Obviously, your client is one of the people whose name is being mentioned. Are they essentially blowing off your client as well? Is he no longer as important as they once said he was? Uh, Well, first, thanks for having me, uh, Ms. Coates. It's a pleasure to be here and be able to speak on behalf of of Mr. Boot. Uh, Look, I don't think this is anything more than what the Russians and the foreign ministry have been saying uh, for some time now, which is uh, we're going to wait until the judicial process and Mr. Griner's case concludes. Uh, When it's over, we're not going to interfere with the judicial process. We're going to let it happen. And when it's over, we'll figure out uh, what what to do next. So I don't think this minimizes uh, their interest in in getting uh, Victor home. Uh, They've been clear about that for, well, frankly, for more than a decade. He's been in jail for almost 15 years. He's ready to go home. They're ready to bring him back. But uh, they do have a a judicial process there. And and that's what they've said. And I should say, Ms. Coates, they've been saying that and they've done that with other other cases. In the past, they wait until uh, the judicial process is over and then they figure out what they're going to do next. Well, it's true. They have said they had a process. But the thing is, for the very reason you talk about 10 or 15 years in prison, why isn't there a fire lit under them to try to get the deal? I mean, there's Paul Whelan at the very least, not including Brittany Griner. Paul Whelan has already had his case fully adjudicated. He, of course, professes innocence this very day. Have there been conversations prior to even Brittany Griner's arrest and now trial that would have included your client in the prisoner swap? Well, look, there, there have been lots of proposals, but the reality is uh, I think Paul Whelan presents a difficult um, issue for the folks in, in Russia because you know, as you know, he was convicted of espionage. Here he's viewed as a hostage. Uh, but in Moscow, he's viewed as a, a notorious arms dealer, whereas uh, here in the U.S., Victor is viewed as a notorious arms dealer. In Moscow, he's a respected citizen who's, who's a hostage. So, you know, I, I think this is nothing more than, uh, than the foreign ministry saying, look, uh, we understand your proposal. Uh, we'll get to it. We're, we're, we're looking forward to talking to you about it. But uh, look, I think some of the things are counterproductive. I think uh, while I understand and understood the motivations uh, for Secretary Blinken. Going public with this kind of a thing is just the opposite 
kind of approach you want to take when you're dealing with, uh, uh, with, with the Russian government, right? I, again, I understand that, that, that the president wanted to communicate to the families that uh, he was doing everything in his power as president of the United States to get them home. Uh, look, we all know that's the most important obligation of the president is to protect its citizens. I think Joe Biden's done a great job doing that. But at the same time, uh, look, you, 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 you've got to let it play out a little bit and you got really want to avoid making these public comments that again, the Russian foreign ministry and spokesman have been saying, Hey, look, the more you're talking about this, the more complicated you're making it. But why is that? I mean, the idea of certainly there were concerns early on in the, in the, um, arrest of Brittany Griner, many people thought and reacted why are they just now hearing about this? She'd been detained for many weeks by the time the American public more generally knew about it. And the concern, I believe, was in part, we understand, that they didn't want to have it be a political pawn and a game happening right before and during the invasion into Ukraine. But I wonder when it comes to um, essentially explaining if there has been a proposal, doesn't it in a way give Russia an upper hand to suggest that, hey, look, we can sort of be dismissive or delay and not be urgent to show a power dynamic that's upper and above the, you know, the United States. Is, why would it be so detrimental to actually make it public? Well, I mean, look, if, if you're asking me whether or not they're feeling a little slighted by the nonstop uh, discussions of Americans in Russian jails being hostages and being uh, wrongly held and wrongfully detained, yeah, I, I, think, I think I'm not surprised that li- they're, they're a little bit offended because it's a constant attack on the Russian system. You know, Russian trials are unfair, but U.S. trials are fair, and Russian folks here get what they get what they uh, get what they de- get what they deserve it's the opposite there you know you're thinking about it uh, from the point of view of, of an american and, and what we get fed with here but the reality is there's a different point of view it's not just the state department mind you who had been quiet about it but remember politicians are out there all the time talking about uh, how terrible it is in russia and how we've got to free these hostages look even in your piece the other day which was uh, which was uh, from from an un you know an unnamed source talking about how we we don't we don't want to trade you know these uh, these innocent Americans for these terrible Russians you know that's just an insult that's not the way it's viewed there and so if you want to make this kind of a thing happen you really got to keep your mouth shut and keep the tone the rhetoric down. Well, I'm so glad that you did watch the program, but the word I used was parody, Steve. And on that particular notion about the wrongfully detained, as was described by the State Department, you know, part of the concern, I think, for many people in discussing these issues has been about, and I understand the rhetoric on both sides from the notion of who is the the bigger criminal. The parody issue in terms of prisoner swaps, as you can imagine, is often about incentivizing for foreign nations, whether it's Russia or other nations, believing sure. that there's going to be a viable swap, sure. the more prestige the particular defendant has. I want to know from you, though, Steve, if, if, have you spoken to your client? Is your client optimistic about the potential to be released? Well, Victor Boot is always optimistic. He's a very strong man. He's very well read, very knowledgeable. But unfortunately, uh, the way the uh, the way the prison is uh, where he is held, he's in a communication monitoring unit. We can only get message to him uh, every 48 or 72 hours or not. Sometimes it takes days to get messages there. He will not allow an interview. He would have loved to have been on your show tonight mm-hmm. with me, but, but, the, but the U.S. government, Bureau of Prisons, will not permit him any interviews with any reporters whatsoever. They turn him down routinely. So, uh, look, he's strong. He's strong-willed. He's ready. He's been through it for almost 15 years 
years now. Remember, he was targeted, uh, retired Russian citizen uh, living in Moscow, had never done anything uh, to harm the United States. When the U.S. government, the D- Drug Enforcement Agency, targeted him in this sting operation. Mind you now, this is a, a Russian citizen, a respected Russian citizen who had committed no crime, targeted uh, by, uh, by the DEA and then prosecuted in the Southern District of New York, which... Uh, and frankly, Victor had never stepped foot in the United States. As you know, the Southern District, a small one of 94 federal districts mm. in the country, decided that uh, that without thinking what the consequences would be of, of targeting Victor Booth, they did it just simply because they did. And the well, con- Steve, you, there's no need to relitigate it with me. And here's the reason. A jury disagreed. He was convicted. He is now serving time. The question now will be, will he be released? We look forward to talking to you again. Thank you, Steve. Well, thank you very much. It was a pleasure to be here. Thank you. Donald Trump was already getting slammed for hosting a Saudi-backed tournament at his golf club. But what he said about it today might be one of his most mind-boggling comments yet. Christine Brennan joins us next. Tonight, words you probably never thought you'd hear from a former American president. What do you say to those family members who protested earlier this week and will be doing so again on Friday? Well, nobody's gotten to the bottom of 9-11, unfortunately, and they should have, as to the maniacs that did that horrible thing to our city, to our country, to the world. So nobody's really been there, but I can tell you that uh, there are a lot of really great people that are out here today, and we're going to have a lot of fun. Nobody's gotten to the bottom of September 11th. Trump is now responding to 9-11 families who have been critical of his support for the Saudi-backed Live Golf Tournament, which kicks off tomorrow at his New Jersey sports club. Let's discuss now with CNN sports analyst and USA Today sports columnist Christine Brennan. She's been following this event. In fact, you were at the event in part as well. First of all, give us a little bit of background here. I'm hearing, I'm hearing a lot about the, the Live um, golf Association. Tell me how this started and is it pulling in PGA players more and more? It's getting more players. Most of them are has-beens, older players, basically want to kick back Laura, don't want to work as hard anymore. Mm-hmm. It's all about the money. It's hundreds of millions of dollars that's being thrown at some of these golfers. The biggest name is Phil Mickelson. Dustin Johnson is another name maybe people will know. Uh, but most of these players are veterans. Most of them have seen their best days. They're not the top players in golf anymore. Tiger Woods said, no way. Rory McIlroy, no way. On and on it goes. But it is Saudi-backed. It is uh, The money is MBS. It's uh, Mohammed bin Salman, of course, is linked to, uh, and officials have said, ordered the murder of Jamal Khashoggi in 2018, the murder and dismemberment. And so basically what I've written and said is that these players who have decided to jump to live golf, which is mostly an exhibition, three rounds, no cut, not at all competitive the way we're used to seeing Tiger mm-hmm. Woods, that uh, they're taking blood money. They're taking money from the Saudi investment fund run by MBS. MBS, of course, linked to Khashoggi. And then, of course, you also link them to the 9-11. Have they compartmentalized? I mean, that's quite a you know, statement to make. But have they thought and, and outspoken about the idea of the compartmentalizing? Have they spoken about the politics, the optics, the socio-political structure in a place like Saudi Arabia? 
We're talking about golfers here, and we're talking about athletes who just want to play golf. I have asked. I asked at the U.S. Open uh, it, up in Boston uh, in June. I just was, as you mentioned, I, I was at uh, Bedminster yesterday asking them specific questions. My questions have been about the 9-11 families. Not what you'd say to us as journalists. What would you say to them, mm-hmm. to Phil Mickelson? He cut me off, and he basically said he has, had a lot of em- empathy for the families. That was it. Very bris- bristling, not at all the Phil Mickelson, the gregarious guy that we used to see. Uh, angry, upset, um, snippy, whatever. That was Phil to me uh, back in June. Yesterday with a golfer, a Ryder Cup veteran named Paul Casey, um, I asked him, now that he has this forum and he has the ear of MBS, would he work on women's rights, which of course are horrendous in Saudi Arabia, and even worse, uh, gay rights, LBGTQ rights. And in both cases, basically, Paul Casey talked about a 17-year-old girl that he'd played golf with. That was his answer about the women's issue, Sports Washing 101. And then when I followed up about gay rights, he said, I don't know enough about the topic to talk about it. He's 45 years old. He's traveled around the world. So these guys have already got the playbook. They've already got the script. And the Saudis are loving it because they're getting exactly what they want from them, sports washing from big names in the game. And... Now you have a former president making a statement about not being able to get to the bottom of 9-11. Really unbelievable. Christine Brennan, glad you're here. Thank you so much. Thank you, Laura. Well, it's an outrageous fortune. I'm talking about a billion bucks and change. You've probably seen the mega millions, call it maybe billions jackpot. It's snowballing this week. Winning the lottery can make you rich, but can it make you happy? I'll ask a guy who knows. I never dreamed that I would climb over the moon in ecstasy, but nevertheless, it's there that I'm shortly about to be. Because I've got a golden ticket. I've got a golden chance. Great. Stuck in my head now, this song, And I Now Want Chocolate. Wonderful. You can buy all the candy you can stomach if you get the golden ticket. Well, guess what? Winning numbers for the mega millions might be the next way to do it. The jackpot is $1.1 billion. But before you buy your ticket, want to listen to my next guest's advice. Timothy Schultz was 21 years old when he won the $28 million Powerball back in 1999. He's now the host of a podcast called Lottery, Dreams, and Fortune. Good to have you on, Timothy. I, you know, the idea of winning that amount of money at that particular age, give me the advice you'd give someone today who might just win this huge lottery. Well, I would say buckle up because it can be one of the most (laughs) life-altering, surreal things that can possibly happen to someone. And I would also say, you know, once the exhilaration of winning wears off, it's my advice would be to relax and sit back and, you know, find some financial advisors and figure out, learn, understand what you can do with the money. And once you have an understanding of that, sit back and enjoy life. I mean, but it can be a whirlwind. It can really turn life on its head. Timothy, we rehearsed you saying also the advice would be to give Laura Coates part of the money. I'm not sure why you did not include that in your statement just now, but we'll work on the next opportunity to talk about this. But you know what? Look, there is no thing as the lottery curse. Um, we've seen the headlines, right? People who've won the lottery, then they... Um, you know, something awful happened to their lives in some form or fashion. I mean, did it ever impact your life negatively in some way? And how do you think it can? 
Well, for myself, you know, I did receive letters and people coming out of the woodwork way back in the day. And, you know, it's still, it, it can go on, but it's been mostly positive. But, you know, I interview quite a few lottery winners, other lottery winners, and I know my own experiences and the experiences of other people. And, you know, I think it really matters who surrounds you, who your peers are, where you come from, and of course, how much you win. All of these things factor into whether it's a positive or negative experience for your life. And I think if you win the lottery, then it really magnifies, it tends to magnify your personality. Mm. So <laughs> I've met a lot of people that have won the lottery. And, and I know from my own experience that it tends to make you a larger version of yourself for most of the people that I've met. So if you're really into sports cars, oh, go ahead. No, I was going to say, has it changed the way you even perceive money? I mean, that amount, the idea larger than life it might do for your personality, whatever was already within you. But I mean, does it change? $28 million at the age of 21, at the age of 71. That's a huge sum of money. Did it change the way you sort of had a perception about money? It did, actually. It absolutely did. I mean, when I won, as you mentioned, I was 21 years old. I was a college student working at a gas station trying to just put myself through college. And I wasn't on the street, but I definitely wasn't wealthy. And so I didn't really have an understanding of, of that kind of money. And I feel as if one of the things that has changed is a perception that money can really buy time, which can be very, very positive. I mean, of course, it can buy all these material possessions, but I think time is invaluable for people. Not, you know, if you can pursue your passions, which you don't need to win the lottery to, to pursue your passions. You absolutely don't. 99.9% .9 of anyone that's achieved their dreams has not won the lottery, but it can help buy some time. And I think yeah. that's invaluable. I think it's like the Arthur Ashe quote, start where you are, use what you have, do what you can at any amount. Thank you, Timothy Schultz. We'll see who ultimately wins this and whether they'll join your podcast next to talk about their winnings in particular. Well, that's it for us. Don Lemon Tonight starts right now. Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. I'm Dr. Sanjay Gupta, host of the Chasing Life podcast. In honor of our 10th season, we want to hear from you. Leave us a message at 470-396-0832 and tell us how you chase life. It could be used on an upcoming episode.